Welcome to The Social Workers radio talk show on WCDB Albany 90.9 FM with co-hosts Dr. Eric Hardiman and Alyssa Lopmore. Here at The Social Workers, we address issues important to our communities with social work students, alumni, and community partners as our guests. As part of the University at Albany School of Social Welfare, we hope to take social work beyond the classroom and agency settings and directly to the public because the public is the client. Catch us on air, online, and anytime. And welcome to The Social Workers on WCDB Albany. I'm Eric Hardiman, and I'm here, as always, with Alyssa Lotmore. Welcome back, Alyssa. Hey, Eric. We have an exciting guest lined up today, too, in a little bit, who's also a oh, WCDB be a great alum. Show. I know. I, I yeah, love the people so- who are on WCDB. They can sort of relate to us and, and know about the radio and just how fun it is to have a radio show, I guess. <laughs> We, we love having alumni on the show. It's great to, you know, welcome people back to the university, even virtually, if we're doing it over, you know, the electronic medium. It's still great to see what uh, folks from, who have graduated from the University of Albany in any of our programs, what they're doing now and, and where they are and sort of catching up with alumni is the way I think about it. And so part of it is just getting updates, but it's also it's also really nice to just hear about um, the successes and the challenges and all the, you know, the great things that are going on with our alumni. There has been a lot of crummy things with the pandemic, but I think one of the positives was finding that, figuring out different ways to record the podcast. Usually we were live in studio, guests would yeah. call in, but even for someone like our guest today who lives in Montana, yeah. calling into a 9 a.m. Eastern time show is not always practical or feasible. So this is one of the, I think, good things about the pandemic is that we were able to sort of think outside the box, get some other equipment and be able to record the show and connect with guests and alumni who are not local. Yeah, it's been one of the nice things. I mean, you and I have talked about it a lot, but we don't always talk about it with listeners, but we love radio and we love the medium of radio. We also love podcasting and and the sort of ability to combine the two, but to do so, you know, remotely is something that that you and I were able to sort of pivot to very quickly because we've both had to do that professionally in the last two years and everybody's using zoom and everybody knows the technology and it's, it's much easier to conduct an interview this way um, than it was two years ago for us. And so it's, it's great to be able to, you know, it's obviously not great to be in the middle of a, of an, of a pandemic like we are right now, but it is great to be able to connect with folks quickly, electronically, share information quickly, get, you know, episodes up quickly. And, and that's, that's a really nice benefit. Yeah. I don't like zoom for anything else, but this, I like Zoom. <laughs> I do like Zoom. <laughs> Otherwise I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a zoom fan outside of uh, the recording shows and some meetings, but, uh, but we're, tr- we're trying at least here on the social workers, we're trying to embrace the technology yes. and really, you know, think about how we can use that technology to our benefit. Boy, it's a, you know, it's a really interesting time right now, Alyssa, the, you know, the Omicron numbers are going up daily, it seems like we are, um, you know, in a time of, it seems like a new uncertainty where folks are just, you know, schools are, are up in the air around the country and trying to go back to school, trying to get students back in the classroom, but worrying about teacher safety and student safety, community safety. We still don't have, you know, the, the whole population vaccinated and boosted. And it's just a really fascinating, challenging, uh, difficult time right now. It is. And it's very, uh, even though there are facts and data, it's still very polarized, uh, especially based by region. You know, some regions, schools are completely open. There's no masks. Other regions, schools are shut down. You know, teachers are refusing to come into work. It's, it's, it's very interesting how this is all playing out. And I think one of the things that we'll talk about with uh, our guest, Dr. Cringy, is how social workers can be really great communicators and help to build bridges and help the, com- help the communication between 
you know, doctors and, and individuals who are worried about the vaccine or for, for teachers and students and their families, how can social workers be that bridge to help get information and facts and just communicate and build rapport with people so there's a level of trust in the information that they're being given. Well, and trust is such a a critical part of it. I mean, we're living in an age where information is everything and access to information is everything. But at the same time, there's widespread distrust of information and people, you know, depending on where you get your information from and what your news source is, you're encouraged to believe certain things and not believe other things. And it, it can be really difficult for anyone out there in the community to really know uh, who do I trust? Who do I not trust? And so I think you're right in, in suggesting that social work and social workers actually have a significant role to play because we know how to build trust. We know how to yeah. work with all sorts of folks and, and to, to be a trusted source of information for them. And social work is a profession that, uh, you know, amongst all of its other qualities, one of the things that it really values itself on is on the ability to have conversations, the ability to, you know, to build relationships between groups of individuals, groups within communities that maybe have different perspectives. And we often see ourselves and by we, I mean social workers, as uh, being mediators and being, you know, being able to bridge some of those gaps in the community. And so, so I wonder, you know, I'm just thinking aloud, but wondering what social work is going to look like six months from now, a year from now, if things keep kind of going down this path of divisiveness, uh, is there going to be, are there going to be new opportunities for social workers to bridge some of those So it's a question. It's just a question. And it's particularly a question that I think our conversation with Jim today, uh, which you'll hear next, if you're listening, um, our conversation really opened up some of these questions and I think, you know, allowed us to explore some of these questions. And so it's a great conversation with Dr. Jim Karinji. Dr. Karinji, you know, uh, you'll hear a formal introduction to him in the episode, but uh, I don't know what you thought, Alyssa, but I I just had a great conversation. You know, Jim and I go back, so it's kind of nice to have a friend on the show as well. Um, But it's really, it's inspiring to hear what he's doing and also interesting to hear how he approaches things from a from a different perspective than than maybe we do here in upstate New York, just because of where he's located geographically. No, I think it's a re- I thought it was a really great episode. I really like talking to him. And he does talk about the role of social work and where he kind of sees social workers in this pandemic time and post-pandemic and how they can help with the communication and hopefully help fix, I don't know if fix is the right word, but do something to help navigate this polarization and bring us back to hopefully more of a place where we're just working together and listening to each other. Right. So good goals to have. All right. So let's, let's get into the episode. And welcome back to WCDB Albany. My name is Eric Hardiman, and I'm here with Alyssa Lotmore for The Social Workers. Welcome back, Alyssa. Hey, Eric. We've got a great show lined up today. We are speaking over the airwaves with Dr. Jim Karinji. Jim Karinji is a professor and chair at the at University of Montana School of Social Work. He is a licensed clinical social worker with considerable practice experience with diverse populations in several different locales. Dr. Karinji's research and development interests encompass primary and secondary traumatic stress, adverse childhood experiences, participatory action research, and both professional and interprofessional team formation and collaboration. We'll also hear in the course of our interview about some of his upcoming work in the area of vaccine hesitancy. His research has appeared in a number of journals, including research on social work practice, the Journal of Family Strengths, the Journal of Public Child Welfare, and he's also co-author of Participatory Action Research, 
published by Oxford University Press. He's been awarded over $4 million in federal grants to pursue his own research. He is a certified adverse childhood experiences master trainer. He's committed to raising awareness about the impact of child abuse and neglect nationally, and a commitment to social justice drives all of his work. Dr. Karinji and his wife, Brenda, live in the west side of Missoula and have two awesome daughters as well. So uh, welcome to the show, Jim. Welcome to the social workers. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Alyssa. It's, it's good to be back on WCDB. I should also say, and I should have said this by way of introduction, that Dr. Karinji, uh, formerly known as Jim, <laughs> we'll still call you Jim, is also not only an alumni of the, the school, an alumnus of the School of uh, Social Welfare at the University of Albany and of the University of Albany's undergraduate, program, but is also an alumnus of WCDB itself, so a former DJ. So we're excited to have you back on the CDB airwaves. It's, it's good to be back. And um, uh, I, I just, I guess first thing I'll say is how lucky uh, Albany is to have WCDB. It's one of my favorite um, parts of the community, certainly of, of the, the university and has been since uh, 1986. How's that? <laughs> wow. So is that when you started on the air? Yeah, well, I started on the air in 1986. Uh, no, I started at SUNY Albany as an undergrad in 1986. And um, I think um, my second semester, I started, I was on the air by the spring. So and I, I had one of those um, dreaded, I think it was, uh, I started at 1.30 in the morning, and I, I went till like five or something. It was, um, it was, it was something. Um, well, a lot of fun and a lot of coffee. So, yeah, a lot of us uh, DJs have been college DJs have been there. In the yes, middle of the night. absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, CDB is is WCDB. For those of you who are listening online and maybe not as familiar or listening via the podcast, not as familiar is just a great college radio station at the University of Albany. And and what we do as the social workers, Jim, if you're not familiar, is that we have uh, this regular show, and it's 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 what we believe. There's lots of social work podcasts around the country, but we believe it's the only university-affiliated actual live radio social work talk show. And so we really value that and value being over the FM airwaves in addition to having a podcast format. But we really sort of view, um, you know, the our role is to talk to social workers and talk to people impacting the community whatever that community might be, like in your case, Montana. So um, yeah, Alyssa, do you wanna kick off some questions and let's let's get the conversation rolling here. Well, this is gonna be a little different because you're not DJing. We should have had you have some music on here too to oh. have you more familiar with like that uh, reminiscing about being a, a DJ on WCDB. Absolutely. So for the interview today, let's just start off a little bit. You said you were, you're an alumnus of the School of Social Welfare of the University of Albany of WCDB. How did this all connect to lead you to social work? Sure, um, um, it's, a, it's a fun story for me to think about. So um, I went to um, uh, an upstate New York, uh, Palmyra Macedon High School, Wayne County out by Rochester, Buffalo um, at the time, still is, you know, farm country. Um, I was always kind of into, you know, the helping idea of things. I wound up going to SUNY Albany. Um, and um, uh, I, I, I was not a, a, a great undergraduate student. Uh, I think a lot of that was because I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, what I wanted to do was be on uh, the radio all the time and play music, um, QE2, bogeys, all the, you know, back in the day. Um, and that was all great. Um, I can say that I, you know, I, I quit school for a while, um, was, you know, to, to spend time on music, uh, came back. Um, so for those of you, um, if there's any students out there that have difficulty with school at first, keep at it. You could be a professor someday if you want to. Um, did not see myself in this position ever. I'll say that first. Um, what I like to tell people, I didn't see myself being a, a professor. I didn't see myself uh, especially being a professor in a pandemic, which I am right now. We all are, right? Um, so um, I, I kind of got um, uh, less enamored with the, the full-time music thing, um, looking, and I started actually um, volunteering at the, um, what was at the time called the Cerebral Palsy Center for the Disabled. So in Albany, I think it's called the center now. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think but, that's the um, Center for Disability Services. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I worked there. Well, I, I, I volunteered there actually playing music with uh, my band at the time, private playing. Um, and um, so, uh, uh, Jim Crawley, one of my best, he still works there. So I volunteered there doing these things. And I really started to, to, to um, dig that. And I wanted to, to instead of trying to make music uh, my, my career and make money off of that, I, I needed to do something different. Um, and, um, I was just really enamored with working with adults with, um, at the time, what was referred to as profound disability. So I, I worked with individuals that were actually, um, at the institution Willowbrook, um, you know, very famous for, um, abuses that then, um, eventually, um, resulted in the community mental health act. Um, but I worked with these, uh, I volunteered and then applied for a job and, and got it in a classroom um, working with these adults that um, were very, like they were in chairs, um, uh, really, really um, uh, profound disabilities, physically um, IQs, if you believe in the intelligence quotient as a thing um, of, of being like 35, you know, mm. um, and so um, I, that unto itself was a profound experience to me. Um, and, uh, I got to work on a multidisciplinary team. So I worked with psychologists, with occupational therapists, with, uh, physical therapists, with nurses, doctors, and social workers. And, um, what happened is the, the, what the social workers did resonated with me the most. Cause I really liked the fact that, you know, they did the clinical kind of individual work, but also looked at this kind of systemic macro perspective, um, which I didn't know what to call it at the time, but you know, that, that was what was going on. Um, and I um, uh, uh, then applied to Boston University where I got my um, master's degree. Um, I got in provisionally. Um, my band didn't think I would get in, but I did um, <laughs> and uh, moved to Boston um, and, and was going to become a uh, Boston University focused and still does um, kind of on urban social work. Mm-hmm. Um, which, um, you know, I don't know if we'll go to this story or not, but, you know, I took that then after I graduated to um, Alaska um, because I thought I was going to be a city guy, um, but I, I was not. Um, and uh, but the good thing about this urban um, approach was that it was really about, you know, what we would refer to now as diversity, equity and inclusion. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, working in, in Alaska in native communities, which I mainly did. Um, it really fit for that. So, you know, it was, it was a pretty profound change over a few years and that was, you know, 1993. Um, and it's been, um, my career ever since, um, first, you know, uh, uh, 10 years of practice and then, um, went on to, um, academia, like I said, which I never saw myself doing, but there, you know, there's a story there too. So, yeah. So how do you go from being a social worker in Alaska and doing that kind of work in, in, you know, a fairly remote area to, you know, to then deciding to go back to academia and become a professor. What, what's the, what's the decision process for you there? Yeah. Um, it's, um, fond, fond memories, uh, to think about that. So, um, you know, basically, um, who would become my wife, um, my wife, Brenda and I, um, did a, um, a large road trip. Um, we had a long distance relationship between Boston and, Jackson Hole, we wound up in Portland where the money ran out. And um, I I, um, actually um, started applying for jobs in Alaska because I really got into like um, the outdoors, mountaineering and the White Mountains, things like that. Um, When I was in Boston and Alaska is kind of the quintessential for that. Um, I was applying for jobs up in Bethel and Nome. Um, They paid a lot of money, but it's really expensive and remote. Um, They were too smart to hire a, a, a greenhorn like me from Boston. Um, luckily, because, you know, I, um, I wound up getting a job um, in Homer, Alaska at the Community Mental Health Center, which is, you know, referred to as the banana belt of Alaska. So it's, it's, hmm. it's the, 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 the climate is not that much different than where I am now um, in Missoula. Um, the, the winters are a lot longer. It gets colder, not all the time. And, the, you know, the summer 60 would be a hot day there, you know, so it, there's differences, but it's, it's much easier than you know, Alaska is a third the size of the United States. Um, so there's huge difference. Um, I worked for uh, the Community Mental Health Center for a little over three years, loved it. And during that time, I was asked um, by a, a supervisor in a, um, a, a staff meeting if anyone wanted to fly to a small village across the Catchmack Bay, Bay where I live to do itinerant work. 
um, two villages and everyone kind of sat on their hands. Um, and I went, yeah, totally. I'll do that. That sounds awesome. Um, and I, it, it, I started going over there to these villages, about 150 people only accessible by small plane. Um, you land on the beach, you could, you could take a boat ride too, but it'd be like half a day. Um, and, um, I really got connected. Um, you know, it took a long time, um, to get connected at that level. Uh, but, um, then, um, I, I got asked to apply for a job, um, it, it, for a native corporation. So in Alaska, they don't have the reservation system that we have here in the lower 48. They have this corporation system, which is a whole nother story you could look up, look up, but, you know, basically it's taking funds from the federal government through the Indian health service Bureau of Indian affairs and compacting them. So they go directly to the community. So they hired me to be the community health development coordinator of these two villages of about 150 people each. So that became my full-time job as about to, um, as opposed to being itinerant. Um, and um, that's what really brought me here circuitously to um, academia because, um, you know, these villages are amazing. They're incredible. They've survived over 10,000 years. They're, um, you know, loving, smart, intelligent people. Um, and there are some really bad things happening um, and some yeah. bad things that they do to each other. Um, and, um, I needed to figure that out because like I said, how does, what is it with this juxtaposition? And it really comes down to what I learned, you know, oppression, the fact that they were, you know, basically tried to be annihilated by the federal government through federal policies. But, you know, so anyways, and I, and I started to experience what um, I didn't know what it was called, but was secondary traumatic stress. So um, I learned about that after I came to my doctoral program, but I really needed to figure this out. Um, you know, what was going on and, you know, semi privileged white guy from upstate yeah. New York. What do I look towards? I look towards school again. Um, but I should sit, you know, before that I, I wound up um, getting an adjunct professor job at, um, in Juneau. So I taught just a little bit and I was able to see if I liked that for about a year and a half um, and um, started applying to programs. And, and you know, I, I, I met online um, email was happening back then um, you know, uh, Eric, Bill Reed, you know, so um, former PhD director, and um, we got talking and I do have family around the Albany area. And um, th that brought me there. And um, so it was really this life changing experience in, in more ways than just that. But um, yeah, 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 that got me here. Great, great. Well, that's exciting. And so, you know, just to bring listeners um, up to speed then. So you did your PhD studies here at the University of Albany School of Social Welfare, and then shortly thereafter moved out to Missoula, Montana, correct? Yeah. So um, we moved from Juneau, Alaska to Albany um, in 2003. Uh, we had my daughter, Darla, um, who I, I was reminded that Alyssa um, heard me talk about a lot in the human behavior class. So when I was a BSW student, yes. And I think we have similar years because I graduated from high school in 2003. So I entered UABNI in the fall of 2003. And then I graduated the BSW in 2007 and went on to the master's. But I think you were talking about moving to Montana around that time too, because I remember that. So I think I was at UABNI the same time you were. <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, we, we, um, we, we were moving out with Darla. Um, you can't drive out of Juneau. You have to take a, a ferry or fly or whatever. So it was this long, we took a ferry down to Bellingham. Um, and Brenda was eight months pregnant at the time. Um, so, um, we, it was a circuitous route. Um, she flew from, from Seattle with Darla, um, another social worker alum from, uh, uh, SUNY Albany, Eric Katz, MSW, um, uh, came out to, the, to meet me and we drove across the country. And one of the places we stopped was Missoula. Um, and, you know, we looked around a little bit. We were on a, I was in a hurry because I didn't want to miss the birth of my daughter, but um, we, we, we looked around a little bit and I was like, wow, you know, this, this could work. We could come back here. You know, the University of Montana is this idyllic, you know, mountain town, the, you know, the hippie people's republic of Missoula, you know, um, amidst a, a very red state, you know, um, mountains coming right out of the campus. So, um, and, and just by, you know, luck, um, they had a position open um, that, that uh, right when I was um, finishing my PhD program, um, 
interviewed, got some advice from Dr. Hardiman about whether or not this was the job for me. Um, and uh, we wound up coming out here. So, um, and it's, it's just been a great fit. And I've actually um, been encouraged to apply for other positions and deanships recently and things like that. And we're, um, uh, this is home. So um, my family has told me a couple of times I could go, but I'd, I'd have to visit them on holidays because they're staying here. So. <laughs> <laughs> So, so that's, that's a great story. And for those of, you know, for those of our listeners who are, you know, either current students or people considering social work as a career, it's really nice, I think, to hear a story like yours. And we haven't even gotten to your research. We've only gotten, we've only brought folks up to date to, through your move to Missoula. And so next we'll talk about your research that you've done since, you know, arriving at Missoula. But even what you've told us so far, I think, has really given listeners potentially an idea about the fact that social work doesn't have to be place based. It doesn't have to be just in your local community and that, you know, people can go on adventures and move to Alaska, move to Montana and combine interest in the outdoors and in uh, indigenous communities and in diversity and equity. And, you know, there's all sorts of career pathways in social work that maybe don't seem readily apparent when you think about, you know, what is it that social workers do? But I think you, you really sort of demonstrate in a, re in a very real life way that, that the opportunities are almost endless. Yeah, I agree, Eric. Um, totally. And that's one of the most exciting things to me about social work. I talk, that, I talk my students about that all the time. You know, it's like one of the areas I haven't been interested in ever um, you know, um, is gerontology um, and, you know, uh, talking about subject matter and things like that. Now, you know, I love my 80 year old mom, but I don't want to do that work, you know, so, um, but I could, you know, because of the education I got at SUNY right. Albany um, oh, in Boston University before that, um, you know, we could do those things and we can do them anywhere, um, you know, and then gosh, you know, uh, looking at the, um, what the pandemic has taught us in terms of, uh, you know, what can happen online. I mean, just with our teaching, right, Eric, it's like, oh, I, ne I can never teach online. No way. Can't do it. And, and then there's this deadly pandemic and lo and behold, it happens. Um, right. And then we, you know, so I, I think that's true in our social work practice that, you know, we get, we get stuck in ways. And one of the things I've, you know, learned from uh, Dr. Hal Lawson, who recently retired is, you know, that just because, you know, a lot of times we do things in social work, it's why, because we've always done it that way, you know, <laughs> That's right. not always the best reason. Yeah. Um, so, so since that time, I mean, I remember when I was a student too, and I signed up for, I think every class that I could have as a BSW that you taught, because it was a nice refreshing uh, take on social work, especially listening to your experiences. I remember you would talk about your work in Alaska and I knew that it wasn't, you didn't have to just sit in an office and be a clinician to be a social worker. And that's one thing that I loved hearing from the professors that I took. I was always kind of selective because I wanted to hear that experience piece um, from the instructor about what else can you do with social work? How do we think outside the box or from what like the textbook says? So how did the work for that you were doing in Alaska, where is that research that led you for your research area? Have you stuck with the, the type of work or have you decided to research in other areas? So I've, I've always been um, a, a mental health guy, you know, so that, that was my area and then mainly focusing on trauma. But then when I got to Alaska, um, you know, it, it's really impossible, even at the community mental health center that, you know, Homer is a community of like what at the time about 3000 people, you know, um, and I, I think our chart numbers went to like 4,500. So we were a well-used community mental health center, you know, so, um, but I couldn't just be like, well, I only deal with trauma. You know, if um, someone came in with an eating disorder and I didn't, that wasn't my, I, I learned some about that in Boston University. Um, I had to, you know, go um, in, in those different areas. So um, I, I got pretty broad with that, but I wanted to go um, to, to research secondary traumatic stress is what I thought um, when I came out of um, Alaska, uh, in part because I saw it happening to myself. Um, and um, when I went, uh, started at SUNY, um, I got um, uh, I got connected with um, Mary McCarthy, Kathy Breyer Lawson, um, Hal Lawson, Nancy Claiborne, um, who are working um, in child, the area of child welfare, which has now become the National Child Welfare Workforce Institute. So I, I was a student. I was assigned along with uh, teaching. 
uh, to, to work in that center. And um, I remember being asked to, uh, to do some more work there and continue. And I, I made a statement of, well, I don't really do child welfare work. I do mental health work. And, you know, that now that's laughable. They, they go together, right? You know, right, so, right. Um, um, so that kind of uh, led me to my dissertation of, of doing uh, secondary traumatic stress, looking at secondary traumatic stress and the impact on child welfare workers. Um, and then I've continued that um, here um, in the state of Alaska doing studies on secondary traumatic stress with Eric um, um, and licensed clinical social workers. One of the first studies I did here um, have yeah. brought that out to public uh, schools. Um, Cameo Borntrager and I have the only two real studies that have been done on the impact of secondary traumatic stress on teachers, um, starting like especially in the pandemic to get traction, more people are doing that. Um, and so I, I've kept going in that direction. I've done some work um, here in Alaska, or I'm sorry, Montana in um, child welfare. And I, uh, the first grant I got was a workforce grant in child welfare um, uh, that through the National Child Welfare Workforce Institute. The next one was um, through the, um, uh, the Children's Bureau uh, to create trauma-informed systems uh, in Indian country. So uh, working here in Montana with um, state systems, tribal systems, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, no time to explain child welfare in Indian country. It's complicated. Um, so that was a $3.2 million five-year grant um, that really kind of took me to um, uh, becoming an academic chair um, and then continuing my research. Um, there's been other projects, but since then, um, I've really broadened out um, into um, my role now is um, at the Center for Population Health Research, where I'm actually affiliate faculty um, in public health. I do just as much work in public health, maybe more in some ways than I do in social work now. And I, I love that, that interdisciplinary approach. So we have this, um, this, this center, um, $10 million five-year project to basically support any population health research. Um, and lo and behold, you know, we thought that that research was gonna be really kind of varied. We do a lot of um, uh, work out here on um, small particulate, basically wildfire um, smoke and the impact on people. Um, mm -hmm. In like 10, 20 years from now, half of the population in the, in, in the country is gonna be because of wildfire smoke. Um, I just learned that yesterday, huge um, and big problems. So, um, but the pandemic hit and guess what? Everything became more focused on COVID. Um, and so I, I know very little about wildfire smoke particulates. I know um, more and more about vaccine research, but my role right now really is as a methodologist. Um, you know, like Eric, I'm a mixed methodologist, a qualitative researcher too. Um, and that, um, I don't know about you, Eric, but um, I've found that, you know, the, the, the interest in qualitative research by other researchers that know nothing about qualitative research um, is growing rapidly, yeah. you know, so yeah. and funders are starting to say, hey, this is this is legit. And then you have folks that are mainly trained um, in quantitative methods. They don't know how to do it. And they come to people like us. So my role now is as a methodologist to help people. Um, in physical therapy, in pharmacy, in social work, um, in biomedical sciences, in forestry, um, to kind of develop their projects. But my main project now is, um, uh, I think, as Eric had said, is, is around vaccine hesitancy specific to um, COVID-19. Wow. So, so, you know, that's, that's an incredibly storied career so far, Jim. And it, for listeners just tuning in, our guest today is Jim Karinji, Dr. Jim Karinji from the University of Montana, and um, <clears throat> who is a chair in social work out there at the University of Montana. And so we've been hearing about your various research, and I, I, it just occurs to me that we could talk about any of those subjects, topics, projects that you've had at length. And we, you know, we obviously don't have time to do all that, but there's so much I want to ask. So um, let me just let me just kind of throw a couple things at you and see um, where we go with this conversation. But I'm really curious about the secondary traumatic piece. And partially that's because you and I have done some work in that area together, like you mentioned. I, you know, I was just reading yesterday um, an article about uh, teachers and the impact of the pandemic on grade school teachers and sort of the you know, the need to better understand how um, 
teachers in our public school systems particularly are being impacted by and the word secondary tra secondary trauma wasn't used necessarily but i'm wondering if you have some thoughts or if your work that you've done in the area of secondary traumatic stress um if you have some thoughts about maybe the connection it during the pandemic and sort of as we move through the pandemic i hesitate to say post pandemic at all right now but uh, as we move through this experience collectively, um, what do you think is the impact of a concept like secondary traumatic stress and how should we be thinking about it? And are there things that we need to really be studying differently? Sure. Um, I guess first thing I'll say is, you know, um, I, my wife is a teacher, so we talk about this stuff all the time. She's actually director of special education services, um, one of the coordinators, I should say here, Missoula County Public Schools district of about 10,000 students. So we talk about this at the dinner table all the time. Think about Darla and Josephine, Alyssa. They, they, that's what they get to grow up hearing. So um, anyways, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it is staggering. Well, first off, we have to talk about what teachers experience on a daily basis on a good day, in a non-pandemic day. You know, much like child welfare workers that, you know, I'm mentioning these areas because they're where I've worked, but Eric, homelessness, you know, um, you know, yeah. any of the fields we work in, um, you know, we're working for organizations that are, you know, street level bureaucrats that, that they're having a really hard time. So it's hard enough in, in schools. Um, and then, um, you know, I think one of the things with secondary trauma and trauma in general is we have to differentiate between primary and secondary trauma. So I think teachers experience both of those things on the best of days. So, you know, the t kids come in one in four kids at least, and I think it's far more than that in, in a lot of communities have experienced significant trauma in their life in the schools. So mm -hmm. these kids come, they talk about their terrible experiences, which we want them to do, um, but that traumatizes teachers in a secondary way. You know, when one of those kids that's dysregulated because of their trauma, you know, takes a stapler and whips it at a teacher and almost hits them, which happens all the time, um, that's primary. You know, so right. it's both of these things. And in the pandemic, um, all of that has just been heightened. You know, I was just watching some, uh, I guess it could be referred to as fake news earlier. Um, and, um, you know, um, they were talking about the fact that, you know, the, like in the Chicago school district where teachers in the union yep. there have refused to, to work right now. And it's against the policies and they're kind of against the mayor, who's a really good mayor, it seems. But, you know, these teachers have these expectations that don't really meet, um, in some ways, their training. So, um, you know, teachers know very, very little. And I talk about it here at the School of Education with the dean and, um, you know, um, other professors there that I know, well, uh, quite a bit. Like, educators need to know about the impact of trauma on kids. The, the other way goes, too, where social workers need to know more about education practices. Yeah. Um, but in the pandemic, it, you know, it, teachers are not only worried about their kids' health, but they're worried about their own health. They're worried about their, you know, their kids' health, bringing things home, you know, now with Omicron, um, it, it's so contagious, you know, it, it, we're all going to get it, it seems, you know, so it, but it's less impactful. Um, it impacts, um, I find teachers to be extremely dedicated. I have not met one teacher that wasn't dedicated and so committed to the work. Now, does it mean they're all good teachers? No but they're, they're right. trying, you know, so it, um, it, an incredible setup, remote education, um, you know, the fact that we know that kids, you know, for social emotional learning need to be together, but if right. we put them together, it's dangerous. So, you know, all of those things um, and more. Yeah, and it just, it just seems like also teachers, as you put it, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't prepared for this pandemic. This was not something that people, no. trained for, mm -hmm. expected, and it's a whole set of different pressures, stresses, worries, you know, much even separate from the, the student experience that's, that teachers have to um, regulate and handle in the classroom, their own set of emotional, you know, expectations and experiences around well-being and, and safety and all of these things, you know, become really complex, I think. Yeah, and one of the things that I, 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 I had good fortune to write um, um, a book on the treatment of complex post-traumatic stress disorder, a, a chapter um, twice, one, a revised one with Lori Perlman, um, who kind of coined the phrase vicarious trauma. And, yeah. You know, um, what, what we talk about is this kind of tragic disconnect 
um, that exists between what people need to know and what they do know um, in their careers relative to trauma. So oh. I, it's, I, I think that's the best word. It's tragic. So, so, then, so talk about like, that first. Or go ahead, Alyssa. Yeah. No, I was just kind of curious, uh, tying in two types of your research. When you're talking about the secondary trauma on teachers and how this is impacting people and the, how in Chicago, sometimes the level of expectation of what can be done uh, to keep everyone safe. How does that tie into your research with vaccine hesitancy and individuals who might be looking at their choice being the safer option and, and different things like that? So how does all of that tie in together or does it? Well, I think it does. You know, in, in between these things, um, you know, I, I, I had the good fortune of going to a think tank for a couple of years in Seattle, um, about 20 of us around the country, including um, Rob Anda, the, the, the PI from the, the ACE study. Um, so I got to know Dr. Anda, to call him a friend now, um, and I learned a lot from him um, in terms of, you know, the impact of ACEs. Um, so I, I think that's one thing, um, Alyssa, that, you know, ACEs are all of us. It's not something that happens only in these marginalized communities. So that's one of the things, um, you know, that, that brings me uh, to, to um, think about the connection between trauma and then vaccine hesitancy. Um, so, you know, but as far as, as that um, study goes, um, uh, that we're looking at um, uh, individuals here in Montana um, and whether they get um, vaccinated or not for COVID-19. And so this is a study, it's, a, it's actually a NIH supplemental grant um, for a, an R01, which is a large um, National Institute of Health grant for folks that might not be familiar with those things. Um, and it's a quick one. It's like we've got a year to kind of figure out why is it in rural communities um, that um, it, in rural and tribal communities, um, why individuals are not getting vaccinated. And here in Montana, um, I saw something um, that said we were like 45% vaccinated, but I think that's one shot or more. You know, so um, if we look at fully vaccinated, I think we're far less than that. Um, and, so, and so have you started data collection with that or is, or is it, wh where are you in that process? Yeah, two days ago, we, we had our first interview. Um, so, and we're interviewing uh, 20 uh, rural participants, um, 10 vaccinated, 10 not. And then we uh, collaborate with All Nations Health Center here, which is an indigenous um, health center here in Missoula that serves the, the region. Um, and they have a team that collaborates. I lead the qualitative efforts um, and uh, they are doing uh, the same thing with 20 indigenous um, individuals who have been vaccinated or not. It's just that I think that's really important to me is in that the lead there um, in that project is um, an indigenous uh, uh, student and then also um, uh, 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 an indigenous team. I think that's really important. That's, you know, that, that's one of the reasons why I'm not researching presently um, in Indian country, which I did for a long time is because sure. I, I Folks can't see, but I, I well, um, and not that it matters, but, you know, I, I can say that I identify um, as, a, as a white um, uh, cisgendered male. So right. um, I, I don't, it's important to have uh, indigenous researchers do that. So, we, yes, we've collected the research and uh, the data we're starting and we've got a lot more to do. And, and are you aware, and, and I'm probably asking you to, you know, um, maybe talk outside of, of you know, to, to just speculate, but are you aware of other studies or is, is there other work on vaccine hesitancy that's going on right now in other parts of the country? Well, the, the first um, study that I was fortunate to be a, a methodologist on with Dr. Sophia Newcomer here in public health and epidemiologist that leads these efforts was on um, HPV, so human papillomavirus, and, um, which is a big deal um, and is one of the number one um, causes of cancer, especially in boys. Um, and we need to get them vaccinated by 11, um, really, and that's not happening. So that there's research in other areas in terms of vaccine hesitancy. You know, COVID-19 is only, what, two years old plus. Um, so not much. To be honest, we're really on the cutting edge. Um, yeah. University of Montana was recently ranked somehow as a, a top 10, you know, university in the world doing um, COVID-19 research. But we're, we're, I can say that some of the things that we've seen um, have to do with um, things that you would 
you would guess, you know, like misinformation, yeah. um, social media, um, the, the fact that um, there, there is um, not any real, uh, you know, valid information that's getting out to people. Um, and it's, it's kind of scary in that way. So. Yeah. And, and, and I guess, you know, the, the next thing I'd ask is, um, you know, which is maybe asking you to jump ahead a little bit in your research, which had, you know, you just started data collection, but do you have a sense of what some of the implications might be for social work and the social work profession? So if we better understand why people are hesitant to get vaccinated, um, is there a role that, that you see for social work in that picture? Absolutely. I think that, you know, one of the things we know, too, is that um, physicians, through no fault of their own, are not good um, at talking to patients about difficult things like whether they should get a vaccine or not. So um, social workers that are trained in things like motivational interviewing are, you know, so um, I think that integrated behavioral health um, is, a, is an area that social work is, is needed more and more. Uh, in so that we can do what we refer to as a warm handoff. If someone says, you know, in a, in a doctor's office, you know, I don't want to get a, um, I'm afraid I, I, I heard on Fox news that, you know, I'm, my kids are going to get autism. Um, doctor's got his 15 minute time. He doesn't have time to do it. Doesn't know how to do it. You hand that off to a list of the social worker who then can, you know, have that conversation. I think that helps, um, you know, in terms of the research, um, it doesn't help to do what oftentimes I want to do which is, you know, um, take my relatives that don't want to get vaccinated and shake them and go, what? Are you? No, you, you just need to do this. Stop, please. Um, that doesn't really help. Um, so motivational interviewing types of techniques can. Um, and then the other thing that my latest hypothesis, and I shared this with Dr. Newcomer just last week was that, you know, it seems to me that really what we need are policy changes. And, you know, I started thinking about the what happened with smoking and, and why smoking yeah. has declined so greatly. And, and I don't believe it was because of the just say no campaign or education or anything like that. You know, it was because we, we kind of came up with these mandates of like, you can't smoke on the University of Montana campus. You can't probably not Albany either. Right. No, you can't. Right. Nope. So right. people will, they got to sneak. It makes it hard. You know, and the other thing we did is we really raised the prices by taxation, you know? So mm -hmm. I think that's the major thing. So, you know, I really think we need mandates, um, and, you know, and that's hard, but social workers know how to do those things. You know, right. we've all right. had, I, I, I think that's where we, we really got to go. And, you know, the political environment is not amenable to that right now, but um, and it's kind of, it's kind of scary actually. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess, where do you see social work? I mean, you've listed so many things, so many ways that social workers can be more involved and help with things like vaccine hesitancy, where, People might think that's more of the medical field, but social workers can play a role. Do you see or predict, I guess, any changes in how social workers are included in more of those interdisciplinary approaches and having more social workers on sites in places like medical communities or in areas where they might be able to reach individuals to have a, a different role? Um, I, I certainly see the need for it, Alyssa. Absolutely. You know, and um, I think all the areas you mentioned, there, there's need for more social workers. I think there's a couple problems there that, you know, or barriers, I should say, you know, one is funding, you know, my state of Montana is not big into funding, you know, any kind of health um, beyond what's required. Um, even in a place like New York, you know, where um, things are, uh, maybe you have, you know, more resources, not in all areas by any means, but some. Um, so that's difficult. And then also we, let's talk about education. We're not producing enough social workers. Um, we can't meet the needs. So that absolutely needs to happen. Um, and, um, but I think that um, that interdisciplinary type of work is, is really what's more needed. So, and as far as vaccines go in social workers, I mean, what seems we're, we're getting better at making all of these things accessible. And I'm not even talking about testing, you know, but what about testing? That that's just as important. Um, I, I'd like to think that, you know, we could get to a place where there would be social workers in the school, like Lowell elementary schools. Like I can throw a snowball at it today and, and almost hit it. 
um, a social worker there that, um, and one of the things that they could do is get a basic training and we could provide that at the University of Montana here, like of how you talk to parents about vaccines and what they mean and, and, and the impact of not and why you should. So I think that that is, um, you know, an area that, and, you know, uh, uh, I, I probably, Eric, you, you're, you know more about, you know, the um, people that experience a difficulty with homelessness, um, but, you know, libraries, places like that, we need yeah. social workers. We've got a, um, an outreach team here. Um, maybe we need that for vaccines as well. So we, we had a, they were going into local bars and vaccinating people, um, you know, um, yeah. not a bad idea. We've also, Alyssa and I have also talked with other guests and with each other about the need for social workers to be more engaged in the media discourse and in the sort of public discourse and sort of taking, you know, one, not maybe not necessarily taking it away from just clinical mm -hmm. service provision for social work, but adding, um, adding mm -hmm. in the responsibility and the need for social workers, what we see as the need for social workers to also be part of a larger public discourse, to be on TV, to be in the newspapers, to be on the radio and podcasts and in other places, furthering discussions that might lead to policy change or might lead to behavioral change. But that, you know, there's this larger social discourse, particularly right now in a really divided society and in a society that's um, <laughs> grappling with a lot of issues and, and struggling with misinformation and facts and mistruths and, um, you know, media, social media influence on our children. And, you know, th there's just so many things going on right now. And I see, I think we see, if I could speak for our show, at least, um, the need for social workers also to engage in the public discourse in public communication and to be out there, so to speak, rather than just to be working behind the scenes. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about that and how social work, again, you know, maybe link that to vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, um, I have, I'm thinking about a, a student um, last year. Um, I, I teach an advanced research class for um, the master's program here and we were forced to go um, uh, remote um, Zoom, like we are now, um, and, um, you know, did it right from here. So, um, but my student um, was interested in looking at why, why social, very few social workers go into politics, you know, that, that's a fact. Um, and um, so my student um, did, did work kind of looking at that. And, um, you know, there's, there's tons of reasons for that. Um, but I, I think that there's absolutely, um, a need for more of that. And I guess, you know, maybe we need to look inward as educators to say, you know, what are we teaching um, students about what social work is um, right. and what it means? Because I, I think a lot of social workers, I don't know if you would agree, Alyssa, or not, but, um, you know, as a more recent um, student, uh, that a lot of people get into social work because they want to be a clinician. They want to be a, a counselor type of social worker, which, right. and I just look at that as, you know, that's one thing, that's a tool in our toolbox. Um, so, you know, when I look at our program here and our commitment to social justice, um, that's important. And also, you know, what are we doing in terms of teaching more policy, teaching more macro, um, taking students like me that came in when I was an MSW student, thinking that I wanted to uh, be a uh, clinician, um, get my license, which I did. Um, but I tell you what, I would have been a disaster in the, the rural bush of Alaska if I didn't learn the, the macro um, side of things. So that, that's right. one thing. Um, advocacy, you know, I think NASW does a good job. Um, they could do better. Um, yeah. And, but, oh. and I do agree with, oh, go ahead. No, I'd say tying that, to, it's just, that all ties into vaccine hesitancy as well. Yeah. You know, and, and we need to be talking about that specifically because, you know, it's, it's not a popular thought, but, you know, th there are worse viruses probably coming our way. So, right. yeah. Right. Um, no, what I was what I was going to say was that as, as, as a social work student, I came in wanting to be a clinician. And it wasn't until I was working as a school social worker after I graduated with my light and my master's degree, I got my license that I was like, wow, there's so many other issues going on that it's not going to be solved at the micro level alone. Like this is not uh, feasible. It's just it's not. So that's when I decided to focus on more macro and sort of get more experience and training in that macro. But I really don't, 
I'm hoping now just with everything that's going on in society where people are seeing the need for macro change and students coming into the program are seeing the need for that originally. But when I first started, I was one of those students who wanted to be clinical. And it was only through working experience and having to navigate all of the policies and procedures did I realize how important and valuable macro is and those skills. Yeah, absolutely. It was the same way for me, Alyssa. And so I guess we got to think of ourselves as educators as how to, because I always tell, try to tell students, you know, well, that's all important. And here it is, you know, so maybe it's through the practicums, um, things like that, um, you know, ways that we could make sure that students get it. And um, yeah, it, it, it takes both. And I, I, I talk to students or potential students all the time that you, you probably do too, Eric. Well, should I do counseling? Should I do psychology? Should I do social work? You know, in my cell is, well, is it what we're talking about right now. You're going to learn to do a lot of different things. And right. if you want to just be a counselor, well, there's do that. Go ahead. Good. Right. Good. Right. We need that too. Yeah. And I'd like to, you know, just thinking about our conversation, I'd like to envision a social work of the future that includes, you know, much more participation in public office, much more participation in advocacy as a profession, and that, you know, that, that social work becomes, and I, th I think the pandemic is an opportunity in that regard for the social work profession, that social work can become a source of expertise and a source of public guidance and public wisdom. You know, you mentioned the news. I mean, you know, I turn on the news and I see people from schools of public health regularly, uh, you know, uh, serving as consultants on TV news shows. And, and, and you don't hear social workers quite as often. You, you hear doctors, you hear nurses, you hear public health workers. Um, but I, I think social work needs to be right there at the table too. And that we have a unique perspective as social workers um, in the public discourse, you know. Totally agree. Yeah, totally agree. Well, and also to make it more important as we're talking about the roles of social work and Jim, you mentioned so many great ways how social workers keep it help in something like vaccine hesitancy. A lot of the news isn't focusing on the mental health aspect or what the reason for hesitancy. They're just saying, well, listen to the doctors. We have a doctor on, listen to the public health expert. We have a public health expert on, but no one's really talking about that social work role and how we are communicators and can build rapport with individuals and have those conversations to help individuals make the best decisions for themselves. Uh, and that's, that's not in the dialogue in mainstream media. <laughs> Or even in our policies, when you know our governors and elected officials come on, it's not really talked about the role of social work and having these conversations. It's just listen to this expert and just follow whatever they say. Yeah, and I think in social work we're good at you know um, it, not just um, talking but doing. You know, so that, that's a big deal. And you know, my thoughts on uh, what you said, Eric. You know, with this pandemic that's going on, is you know. Um, Never waste a good crisis, right? That's a that's a quote, you know. And, and I think we're forever changed, um, certainly in yeah. higher education and in all elements. So we as social workers can. This is an opportunity in a very difficult circumstance for us to potentially. I don't know if I would say reinvent ourselves, but you know, because we we have the rich history of, you know, um, Jane Addams, Mary Richmond. We've got you know we've got it both, um, yeah. and just kind of revisiting that. Maybe some of it's about you know, more critically looking at what we do. I, I would, is, yeah. How has this changed you in this time? I mean, you're a professor who is teaching during a pandemic. It, there's a lot going on. How has this pandemic and this crisis, uh, how has this changed your role or your thought process on things? So uh, in a lot of ways, and I, I, I'm fine with sharing with uh, folks that are listening that, you know, I, I am someone that's been completely vaccinated, but before I was boosted, um, got COVID back in mid-September, don't know how, doing all the right things. Um, and I was a long hauler till, you know, a few weeks ago. Um, so, you know, it's, it, I have felt it. Um, and uh, it's not the flu, everybody, um, you know, no time to talk about, you know, really, the difficulties, but it's much worse, at least, you know, what I had was probably Delta. Um, and so that with the science that I'm learning, the science that I'm actually um, involved in, um, it, it's changed me a lot, Alyssa. And, you know, in fact, I, you know, um, I, I, I'm uh, changed what I'm doing at the university. So, you know, as of um, 
mid-November, um, I stepped aside as chair, which I've been doing for six years, and I'm, I'm doing more of the research. So I'm, I'm getting back into that. I'm thinking about how I can engage with the community. Um, and it's helped me really also um, think about, we haven't talked about it, but the disproportionality of the impact of, of COVID on marginalized communities is staggering. So my, um, my, uh, uh, one of my my other um, alma mater of Boston University did a huge study on that. And the, um, I, I think that um, through public, their public health program, I think it was something like the, the, the rate of death was 80% higher, you know, with um, BIPOC individuals from COVID-19, 80%. Yeah. I mean, come on. So it, it, it really is kind of, um, you know, I, I like to think that I thought about those things before, but it, it really has kind of made me um, think about uh Black Lives Matter um, movements like that, um, and and you know also just being a father, um, wanting to, to, to we, we can't ignore this. So it's it's kind right. of, I it might it might have kicked me in the butt a little bit. Maybe I needed it. So anyways, <laughs> so we've been listening to a conversation. We've been having a conversation and listening to Dr. Jim Karinji from the University of Montana. Uh, working out there in social work and doing just incredible work and incredible research, teaching students, uh, working with colleagues, you know, getting ready to, to do a, a large, you know, national, uh, sort of nationally funded, federally funded uh, study on uh, vaccine hesitancy, done great work in the, um, um, in the Indian community, the Native American community out there. You've done work in secondary traumatic stress, child welfare, the list goes on and on. And um, we really appreciate having you on the show, Jim. And it's, it's just been so great to hear as an alum um, of, of the School of Social Welfare and of the University of Albany, uh, you know, to kind of see what you've taken elsewhere, what you've taken to the state of Montana and, and to the larger, you know, knowledge base that's out there. It's just really incredible. Do you have any thoughts just as we close sort of about how um, the University of Albany prepared you for the work that you've done? Absolutely. I was thinking about that as you were, um, you know, talking about um, what I, the things that I've done. Um, and I, I, I'll just say that I couldn't have done any of those things without the education that I received um, first at Boston University and then, you know, SUNY Albany for sure. And, you know, in particular, um, the, the doctoral program um, helped me because um, I, I, you know, I was fortunate to take um, Dr. Hal Lawson's action theories course. Um, it, it made me um, action research series, see how research and practice come together. Um, so that was a huge thing. And um, I think about the education that I got at SUNY Albany um, every day. Um, uh, I, it, it, it was amazing. Um, you know, and I, I <laughs> hey, I'll, I'll throw WCDB in there too, because, you know, my experiences that I had on the radio led me to what I was able to see um, through the doctoral program at, at, at Albany. Um, I'm forever grateful. Interesting. Well, we see, you know, Lisa and I both see, you know, radio and podcasting as also being community building. And, and so sharing the voices of folks like yourself and, and other, you know, people that we've interviewed from around the world, basically, uh, that, that there's a community building that happens there, too, that we're sharing information and extending the conversation into the public. So uh, thank you so much for talking with us and for catching us up to date. And we hope you'll be a, you know, a frequent um, flyer and come back and, uh, and talk to us again and let us know the results of your study, particularly the, um, you know, the vaccine hesitancy study, because I think that those results are going to be really timely and we want to hear about them. I, I would love to do that. Um, and um, we, we should, like I said, this is an expedited um, supplemental funding from NIH because of the fact that we can't, we don't have the luxury of waiting. So, um, in the next few months, we'll have some things to tell you. Great. So Alyssa, do you have anything else to close out? No, I just want to say thank you. And even to this day, through my master's program, you were still one of the best professors I've had. So 
Awesome. Well, it's your it's, students are lucky in Montana. Thank you. There's nothing more gratifying than seeing a student doing what you're doing, Alyssa. So, um, you know, for a professor, right, Eric? So awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks uh, for talking with us, Jim. We've been listening to Dr. Jim Karinji here on The Social Workers on WCDB Albany. And that's it for now. We'll see you next time.